This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. Kids, who can understand anything? I can tell you what's going on with kids. Um, They're not so enamored with Facebook. In fact, Facebook is losing friends as Snapchat lures teens away. Our next guest covers social media companies. Deborah Aho Williamson is principal analyst of social media at eMarketer. They're a digital research and data company that really works with their clients uh, and helping them to make decisions when it comes to the digital world. She joins us on the phone from Seattle. Uh, Deborah, nice to be talking uh, with you. So we've got this story uh, out on the Bloomberg. Our reporters talking about Facebook uh, losing... um, to Snapchat, tell us what's going on in terms of the demographic changes, continuing or continuous demographic changes at Facebook. Yeah, hi, and thank you so much for having me. So the top line on the story is that we are forecasting Facebook to lose 2 million people in the U.S. this year under age 25. And the usage declines are actually happening faster in the 12 to 17 group, that teenage group, than we previously forecast. And on top of that, for the first time, we're also forecasting declines in the 18 to 24 age group and also in 0 to 11, which even though Facebook doesn't allow people that young technically to use Facebook, we all know that some some of them do. So it all adds up to a, a drop for Facebook and potential increases for companies like Snapchat. Uh, Deb, are they moving to, um, first of all, hello. How I hope you're well, and everybody. <laughs> Hi. Uh, uh, Carol, you don't know this. Deborah and I used to work together uh, oh, many years that. ago at the Industry Standard Magazine. Nice. Uh, 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 a great loss when she left the world of editing and started doing great analysis. Uh, but is this, it seemed to me that one of the approaches that Facebook saw to people of a certain age not wanting to use uh, Facebook was to acquire Instagram and to grow uh, Messenger um, and to grow WhatsApp. Are, are they Are they moving to other platforms? Are they avoiding social media? We should be so lucky. Are they going to Musical.ly? What's happening? You know what? Those are excellent questions, Corey. And you know what? You're right. They are still staying heavily in social media. We're certainly not forecasting any decline in that teen or young adult age group in their usage of social media. Uh, In some respects, they are going to Snapchat. They're also going to Instagram. And that is exactly uh, part of Facebook's strategy, as you allude to. Facebook made a super smart acquisition when it it bought Instagram a few years ago for, I I believe it was a billion dollars. I mean, you think back on that and you go, wow, <laughs> that was a really smart acquisition. But they also own Messenger and WhatsApp, and all of those properties also are growing, continuing to st- remain strong with the young adult age group. So really, this, this, is, a smart, this is a smart move on Facebook's part to uh, broaden into a multi-app platform. And to be fair, Deborah, I mean, Facebook still has, what, 169, almost 170 million users uh, in the U.S. alone and millions more outside the United States. Absolutely. And the trend that we might be seeing happening here in the U.S. with younger users leaving may not necessarily be duplicated outside the U.S., and and you're absolutely right. 170 million users this year, according to our forecast, in the U.S., but many, many more outside the U.S., and that is actually where Facebook is also growing more strongly overall. Talk to me about your methodology. How do you glean this stuff? Because Facebook doesn't tell us this kind of information at all. They don't even break down how many people are on Instagram versus how many are on Facebook and how many overlap. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we use a multi-pronged methodology where we look at third-party survey data. So surveys conducted by other companies where they ask people, do you use Facebook? Do you use Snapchat? How often do you use these properties? And how old are you? We gather multiple data points uh, regarding that. And then we match that up with publicly released data from Facebook, both in their earnings report as well as the data that's available in their advertising tool. Uh, and then we layer on top of that uh, you know, tre- trends and changes in the public uh, in the population population in the United States. So it's a really it's a combination of things and uh, combined together that 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 yields the numbers that we put out and uh, you know I'll I'll tell you that this is actually not the first time that we're forecasting declines in the in the 12 to 17 group um, but it is the first time that we're recording we're reporting multiple or, or excuse me declines across the 18 to 24 and 0 to 11 group. So uh, this all seems to be happening much faster than we thought it was going to. So is this a story that says, hey, Facebook, you know, your numbers can change and you could be losing that you know, younger demographic that you're going to need for future growth going forward? Or, you know, a reminder, too, at the same time that Facebook is kind of nimble, right? And they figure out new products to make sure that they're kind of tapping into different demographics in terms of users. You're right. I think it's some of both. I think the most logical thing that you can point to is Facebook's embrace of stories. I remember on the quarterly earnings call just a couple of weeks ago, Mark Zuckerberg talked about how stories was a platform or an idea that was going to be potentially even stronger than a news feed as a way of delivering content. And I thought that was really telling because we've seen stories, uh, which are these 24-hour, uh, in case people don't know, these are these 24-hour media compilations that people can put together where you can upload photos and images and information about where you are and what you're doing, and then after 24 hours, it disappears. It's basically what made Snapchat so popular. Facebook's embraced that with Instagram and with Messenger, and it even offers the stories format on Facebook itself, although I'm not sure how widely it's used there. Uh, These are the kinds of things that I think Facebook is doing. They're noticing this is how young people are engaging. I just am not sure if this is what's going to happen on Facebook, maybe more so on Instagram. I mean, are we starting to see in social media, I think about, I grew up and I was like a General Motors fan. Family, you know, and you start with, what is it? Uh, is it you start with a Chevy and then you move up to a Buick and then you move up to a Cadillac kind of thing? I mean, are we seeing any of that kind of in social media? What's the Cadillac of social media? That's <laughs> yeah. what I, want to know. I don't know. I don't know, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, kind of targeting different audiences. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it is. Again, getting back to Facebook's multi-app strategy, I mean, that really is a, a strong point in Facebook's favor. Uh, certainly, I don't think they're, they're, uh, they're losing users and in, in the, the young users in that Instagram uh, platform, for example. Uh, WhatsApp is extremely popular outside the U.S. Messenger also popular uh, both inside and outside the U.S. So I don't know that you're necessarily seeing a, a, <laughs> that's a really great analogy uh, of, of moving up in the, the food chain in terms of automobiles, but you're certainly seeing maybe a, a cross-pollination uh, of people who, who maybe uh, are using Instagram, and then maybe when they get older, uh, they might have to use Facebook. I mean, I know my daughters who are in high school, uh, both of them joined Facebook in recent Yeah. Deborah Hall Williamson uh, from eMarket. Great stuff, great research. Glad to have you on, as always. This is Bloomberg. American history and practical man. You study them hard hoping to pay. Matt Glasbach joins us right now, the CEO of Quizlet. If you don't know Quizlet, well, uh, you don't know a lot. And those who do know Quizlet know a lot more because it's helping students study uh, through creating some really clever quizzes. Uh, uh, Matt, talk to me about uh, this business and how big it is. 
Uh, thank you very much. So we are the largest online learning platform in the U.S. Uh, we're the most popular. Uh, we see more than over one in two high school students and one in three college students in the U.S. using us every month to help them practice and master whatever it is they're trying to learn. Tell us a little bit more about the program, because for those who might not have kids, I mean, Corey and I are very familiar because of our, our daughters, but tell us a little bit about how it works and some of the different options that teachers can use it for, students can use it for. Absolutely. So Quizlet is an open platform, and so you can use it to study for really anything you're trying to learn. It started out uh, many years ago as online flashcards. So you would come and create your study content, you know, your terms and your definitions or your questions and your answers. And then what Quizlet does is it generates uh, quizzes and, and different types of questions, learning activities, even games, match games and, uh, and timed games to help you practice and master that information. And so, you know, teachers will use it for everything from, you know, vocabulary or foreign language learning to biology, science, algebra, et cetera. Uh, and we see it used at really every, every part of the learning cycle for introducing new material, for studying before a test, for getting that, uh, that certification. And it's not just high school and college students, but we see, you know, doctors passing the board lawyers, uh, you know, uh, people uh, passing the bar for their law exam, getting their Series 7 uh, investing license, you know, really anything. Uh, and, and yet, uh, you know, as we see that happening, I mean, it seems like you're gathering a lot of data at the same time. You're actually learning, you know, what answers work, what answers don't, what kinds of things people are trying to learn. That, that's absolutely right. You know, it, we have such scale. We now see over 30 million people studying on Quizlet each and every month, and that number is growing uh, by leaps and bounds. And in doing so, those users are really generating billions of learning transactions or billions of these question and answer sessions on a weekly basis that then we're using to train machine learning and AI models and kind of pump that back into the uh, into the product to help guide study. And our goal is really how do we help people practice and master what they're learning in the most efficient and most effective way possible. So we're using this large data set to do that. Hey, Matt, are you guys making money? How do you make money with this business? That's a great question. So we do have uh, two revenue streams. So we have some advertising that, uh, you know, during uh, during peak seasons, we're in the top 20 websites in the U.S., so we get a lot of traffic, and we run uh, ads to help offset some of those costs. And then we also have a subscription business model where users can upgrade to our paid product, and they get access to some more advanced features, some data, and some reporting. But that said, our goal is really to make sure that everyone can study and learn for free. So we make the platform freely available to really democratize uh, access to information and access to education. And then a small percentage of our users, some teachers, some students, will upgrade for some of those more advanced features, and that helps us uh, generate revenue. I'm remiss if I just don't say that my daughter, when I told her I was talking to you today, my, my, my 12-year-old said, tell him I got straight A's in my first semester of Spanish because of Quizlet, and that, that it was that user-generated nature of it that let them both, you know, structure the quiz and then use the quiz in the way that we used to use three by five cards. 
That's that's excellent to hear, and uh, we we hear those stories every day, and that's really you know that's really what motivates us. I uh, I oftentimes wear a Quizlet T-shirt around town, and and the number of people who who come up to me and stop me on the street and tell me that you know I had one woman recently tell me Quizlet saved her life because it got her through college and that got her a job and that put her on the right track. So it's uh, it's great to hear those stories. That's gotta feel great. Uh, yeah, where do you see it all going though? Like, what's, is there, I don't know, in, in a year from now, two years from now, how might the business evolve? So our broader vision, touching on the, the data that, that's available, we, we have these interactions on how people learn and what they're studying at a scale that's just unimaginable in the more traditional offline world. And so we can harness that information. And really, our goal is building an AI-powered tutor that can help anyone learn anything. Uh, you know, and so mm. if you think about you know, what, what the privileged have access to is high-priced tutors that can really understand the student, understand what they're trying to learn, help them when they get frustrated, nudge them in the right direction, ask the right leading questions. Well, we believe that with technology, we can build that and provide that at scale to everyone around the world. And it can be content agnostic. It can really help you learn, whether it's, you know, learning the vegetable codes for your for your uh, retail job right. or, you know, learning organic chemistry or, or uh, data science. Yeah, just amazing stuff. Uh, Matthew Glossbach, uh, CEO of Quizlet, really cool company. I'm a hard, hard worker. I'm working every day. I'm a hard, hard worker. And, and sometimes you're working really hard just to find a job. If you're looking for a job, then you might want to avoid the seven deadly sins of job candidates. From someone who says he places professionals in a job every three minutes, let's bring in Gary Bernerson. He is the chief executive officer of Corn Ferry. He joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. Gary, nice to have you here with Corey and myself on this Monday. You've written this book. It's called Lose the Land, Lose the Resume, Land the Job. Um, tell us why you wrote this book. You know, I've been, uh, I've just been shocked over, over my career. You know, people do more research in terms of buying a washing machine <laughs> than to think about the next job they want or, or how to go about their careers. And, it, and it's been, you know, from kids out of college to board members of the Fortune 100. So what should they do? I think you got to be proactive. I, I think that you know most people think that resume is ninety percent of the of the effort, when in fact it's only ten percent, right? So so you sit there and you get in the computer or you get out a piece of paper, and you try to reconstruct your resume, and you you get caught up in is it a verb, an adjective, and you get so frustrated, you you give up, right? And and you think you're trying to be you know Ernest Hemingway. I mean it's, and, but but people that's the mindset they have. It's almost like let's do lunch, you know? It's it's never going to happen. Well, you know. I tease that you got that you write about the seven deadly sins of job candidates. We don't necessarily have time to go through all of them, but what are a couple of the biggest mistakes in addition to maybe what you just said about resume writing that job candidates make? Well, I think the biggest is they're not proactive. So so they don't think about purpose and happiness. You know, if you're happy, you're motivated. If you're motivated, if you're motivated, you're going to love what you're doing and you're going to outperform. So, so the first thing is you've got to, you know, you've got to look inside yourself and say, hey, where are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Um, what industries would I like to be in? What companies are in those industries? What cities? And you have to proactively target the companies and the bosses that you'd like mm. to work for. It's funny. I just talked to a group of college students from my alma mater, and I said, you know, 
you're going to go on interviews, but you're interviewing companies too. And if there's a company you want to work for, go after them and let them, you know, like like it's interesting how things have changed, right? We just kind of used to wait for everybody to reach out to us, but, but that's really important that you need to go after the companies you want to work at. Well, remember when we were kids, we'd, we'd go down to the grocery store or ice cream shop or bike shop, and what did we do? We filled out an application. So what happened? A friend said, hey, that grocery store is a great place. Why don't you go down there and fill out an application? Well, why is it 10, 20, 30, 50 years later, we forget that? And, and it's like we're waiting to be, you know, uh, discovered. Uh, yeah. and, and it just doesn't happen. I mean, if, if you think that just sending in a resume is going to get you a job, you just will go down to 7-Eleven and, and buy a lottery ticket. Your chances are exactly the same. So, you know, in this, in this era when just, there's new kinds of information coming at us in all ways, are there new ways that people should be researching the places they might want to go work? You know, go go on. You know, go online. I mean, actually, you know, think about what gets you excited, and 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 go online and and find out the companies in those sectors or industries, the cities where they are. Go on their website. Go to LinkedIn. You know, there there are today. It should be easier than ever um, to to do that kind of research. And you know, you've got a network. I mean, it's a contact sport. It's interesting too that you say that. The reason people leave their jobs, you say it's a surprising reason, but I know it's it's the thing that is often a, a biggest the biggest catalyst for me. If I get bored, that's when it's like, okay, it's time to move on. You know, people, you, for you know, money's important. Okay, no doubt about it. But actually, when you look at it, people leave bosses. They don't leave companies, generally speaking. And the second thing is they get bored. People want to grow, and they want to learn. Wait, say that again. People leave bosses? Say it again. I I believe that that people leave bosses, not companies. I mean, how many times have you hated your boss? Like, how many times has your boss? Never. (laughs) Never. Because you're waiting for your big bonus. But how many times has your boss said to you, hey, Corey, hey, Carol, man, that was incredible. You really made my life different today. Anthony says that to me daily. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Come on. You know that's not true. And what we found at Corn Ferry is the number one predictor of executive success is curiosity, is learning agility. And guess yeah. where you learn? You don't learn. It's 70, 20, 10. 10. 10% is the textbook. You, you don't learn in the classroom. You learn from your boss, your mentors, and from the assignments you're doing. Gary, you guys at Corn Ferry, too, you often are working with individuals that have a bunch of experience and you're often dealing with higher level positions. What's the environment right now, though, for those individuals who maybe got caught in the financial crisis, they're older, maybe they're over the age of 50, great skills. You know, I I hear stories that people say they're in demand, that they're wanted because they're wanted for that experience, and yet they're still having a tough time finding jobs. Does the job market still skew younger? I think that right now we're at full employment, and I don't think it necessarily skews younger. It does skew towards skills, no no question about that. But my thing is, look, uh, this is the best. If you want to be proactive in your career and your job, this is the best time to do it because the labor market is robust. They need you. The market needs you more than it needs, than you need it. I think now's the time, but don't get caught up in the same old, same old, 
I'm going to send you my resume because you just you're not you know you're going to get hit by lightning. I mean, it's just not going to happen. You need that warm introduction into the company. This reminds me of the conversations we were having in '99 and maybe even early 2000, but not in 2001. We were we earlier we had a guest on who was a, an editor with me at the Industry Standard magazine, and I was writing a cover story for the Industry Mag- Standard magazine. We'd hired uh, Scott uh, Adams, the Dilbert guy, and he did an illustration of the Dilbert character sitting at a desk, looking up in the sky at a noose coming down. And the story <laughs> I was writing for the cover of the magazine was "Why Work Stinks Again." The magazine went out of business before we could finish the article, so the cover was all set. But there are jobs that became a lot uh, more uh, scarce after that. But right now, these are gravy days. Great stuff. Uh, Gary, great, uh, Gary Barman, CEO of Corn Ferry. The book is called Lose the Resume, Land the Job. Trump talking about building up our infrastructure. He revealed his uh, long-awaited proposal to upgrade things like roads, airports, other public works. Uh, it's a 53-page document, and it details how he plans to stimulate at least $1.5 trillion in new investment. That's a lot of money. Jay Jacobs is Vice President Head of Research at Global X Funds. $10 billion in assets under management. Joining us back in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for having me. So, you... I don't know how much you've had, you know, time to look over what the president is proposing, what might be the outcome on infrastructure investing? So the idea behind this is trying to put more of the onus on states and local governments to invest in infrastructure. So if you look at the plan largely, there's a huge, you know, they put the headline number of $1.5 trillion. Mm-hmm. In reality, it's $200 billion of federal spending, and they want that to be matched by really over 80% of it being funded by the local and state governments. So um, if that is successful, you could see some very large investments in infrastructure going if, forward. If. if. That's a lot of money to lop on states and cities. It is. And I think the way the White House is looking at this is kind of from the perspective of a company. So, you know, just think about investing from a company. If you're going to build a factory, you look at the costs and then you look at your rate of return on that factory. If you're looking at infrastructure from the state and local uh, perspective, people are saying, okay, look at the cost of infrastructure and look at what you think the economic growth from that infrastructure will be. And now the government is, the federal government is saying, now take 20% off that cost. And that should, you know, ideally make more governments decide that this is going to be a pro-growth uh, high rate of return investment for them going forward. So as this unfolds, will this also have a role, I would imagine, for uh, the ways that these deals are insured? Having the federal government backing can just lower the cost of insurance and make it possible to build something when it wouldn't be possible otherwise. So I, I think that's part of it is, you know, are more state and local governments going to accept projects that they wouldn't have accepted in the past? And I, and I think the problem is a lot of people are looking at this infrastructure as, you know, we have such bad infrastructure around the country. We need the federal government to just spend tons and tons of money to just, you know, build tunnels in New York, to build bridges in California. And that's not what this plan is. It's really to try to put a little bit of money towards a lot of projects and hope that that spurs a lot of projects to be completed. But when you look at it realistically, as somebody who has to invest in infrastructure, investing in companies that will be impacted by infrastructure spending, you say, "Mm -mm, not exactly what we would say would be bullish for the infrastructure sector. No, I I do think it's bullish. I mean, certainly it's better than nothing, right? This is money that was not available previously that could be made available. Um, I think time will tell to see if this really spurs the $1.5 trillion in infrastructure spending that the Trump administration hopes it does. And, you know, I think that's probably a pretty bullish expectation, but... Uh, we'll find out. Jay, what historically, I mean, this is your area, this is what you guys do. What historically has been the best bump 
to infrastructure spending? Well, this might sound a little cynical. What's been good for infrastructure spending is sometimes economic downturns, because what ends up happening is this is very counter-cyclical, and you see governments say, we're going to spend a lot of money and pump it into the economy, uh, and that tends to be in downturns. Now that we're in kind of mm. this pro-growth economic cycle, uh, it's a little bit odd to see infrastructure spending right now. Um, but uh, So it, this is a little bit unprecedented, I would say. When, uh, what is the role of private, uh, uh, privately owned toll roads, bridges, those kinds of things that were part of some of the early discussions that came out of President Trump, where they had a notion that private companies would come in, they get matched with public funds, but then they would end up owning the asset? So that was probably kind of part of a bigger part of the plan originally than it is now. It's a little bit subdued in the plan, but the U.S. is very unique in its infrastructure. If you look abroad. Airports are privatized, subways and buses are privatized, highways are privatized. In the U.S., that's actually pretty rare. And so to try to create an infrastructure plan around privatization has to change kind of the entire infrastructure system in the United States and the psychology around it. If you go to a commuter and say you have to pay $10 to drive to work now when you didn't have to pay it before, how is that going to change how people think about Well, especially when it's tied up with tax breaks, too. You know, here, you could, we'll give you a tax break so you pay less and get a permanent asset that pays you, oh, and the public's going to pay for it uh, in addition to what whatever taxes they're paying. Yeah, so it's, you know, it, it, it becomes a pretty complicated issue pretty quickly. And then you can see, you know, states are involved, lo uh, you know, local governments are involved, federal government is involved. And, and so the other part of this plan that I think could be more beneficial going forward is, is aside from the money, uh, looking at trying to streamline infrastructure projects. So a lot of this money is tied to certain speed requirements of can you meet these milestones quick enough that the idea behind that is, you know, the government can't tell New York how to build infrastructure, but it can say, if you don't figure this out in two years, you're not going to get any money. Now go figure out how to build it in two years. Yeah, that, that can be very useful. You guys actually have an ETF, it, the ticker is PAVE, um, that tracks infrastructure spending. If the infrastructure spending ultimately is at the lower end of the money that we're talking about today, what kind of companies will benefit? So, and just got about forty seconds. So traditionally, people have looked at uh, you know traditional infrastructure assets as benefiting, but we don't think that's really kind of where the benefits are going to be accrued. We think it's going to be in construction and engineering companies, uh, heavy machinery companies, transportation companies, and raw materials. So not the owners and operators of infrastructure, but the builders and developers of infrastructure. So the building blocks of it, and you guys have um, you, people can check it out at Fast and All, Fortive, Eaton Corp. Those are some of your biggest holdings yep. in this ETF. If they spend a lot of money, is it the same companies that benefit? Just it's quickly. the same companies, just just a bigger bigger magnitude. Play it that way. The people have to give the stuff to make it all. Um, Jay Jacobs, thanks for coming in again. Thank you. Nice and timely. Jay Jacobs, Vice President, Head of Research at Global X Funds. $10 billion in assets under management, the ETF. ETF, excuse me, Global X, U.S. Infrastructure Development ETF, PAVE, P-A-V-E. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. The drive to the close lately has been like me driving off the blue tees, a wicked slice to the right or to the left or anywhere I want that I want the ball to go. Alan Zaffron 
with First Republic, managing director of their First Republic investment, these closes, these last hour of trading, these last three or four days, have been dramatically awry. <laughs> Corey, they certainly have. I can't tell you which way it's going to go. I mean, it, I think we've covered over 20,000 Dow points just in the last couple weeks. <laughs> count the up and the Feels down like every it. day. It's crazy. Yeah. Unbelievable. So how do you deal with this? Focus on the long term. Don't get caught day trading and don't find yourself in a leverage volatility ETN that's subject to getting closed out and you get nothing back. Stick stick with the long term plan. And frankly, if you're still buying into the theory that the economy is fine, both in the U.S. and globally, this is an opportunity. You know, our industry is the only industry I can think of. When things get more expensive, people want to buy, buy, buy. And when things get cheaper, everybody wants to run for the hills. It makes no sense. You should be taking advantage as prices fall, selectively adding to your stock exposure if, indeed, it's not in alignment with your long-term goal. But, but stick with your long-term goal. But if things are down, don't look at the headlines. You should be buying. So, okay, fair enough, right? Long-term strategy. But what do you think will be happening with the economy and the backdrop for corporate profits over the next, let's say, one to two years? Well, I think corporate profits are set to grow. And the reason I believe so is both in the U.S. and overseas, economies on the margin are improving. What we're seeing is economic activity is picking up. Wage growth is accelerating a bit, but not excessively. So we're in the perfect world of stronger economies with low to moderate, but not excessive inflation. And in that environment, that's the perfect perfect formula for an owner of a business, which is what you are when you own a stock. My revenues are going to grow, but my costs, my wages, and my input prices are not going up at the speed of my revenues. So I'm actually making profits that I can either pass on to myself in the form of a dividend or I can reinvest in my business. This is the good times. They are right now. They have not yet ended. Do healthcare costs put a – well, they certainly put a damper on that, but do they, they put that in jeopardy? Oh, it certainly does. Uh, healthcare costs are unfortunately out of control, and that gets to the whole question as to whether or not we're even, we're even calculating inflation properly. The government would like to tell you it's exceptionally low, partly because its annual cost increases of Social Security payments are tied to an index that they keep artificially low. If you have kids or if you have elderly people that, or yourself are injured and you go into a hospital, you know those inflation's running much higher. As it relates to businesses, uh, health care is probably right behind labor as its second highest costs. Having said that, businesses have been, have been able over time to build in for those cost increases. And given where we're starting from, buying stocks is a forward, forward-looking process. People have built in most of those health care costs into their earnings and expense estimates, which is why earnings are still projected to grow. Alan, so where have you been putting money to work as the markets have been pulling back, and how aggressively have you been putting money to work? Uh, Not aggressively, but moderately. I think a wonderful technique is if indeed you don't have complete equity exposure where you'd like it or you've been sitting on the sidelines, is what I've been doing is putting good until canceled limit orders at prices below the market, either for individual stocks or sectors through ETFs, mm-hmm. or simply using index funds. And I think a great way to do it through dollar cost averaging is you t- pick a point where you're willing to start buying the stock market. Maybe it's 5% or 7% or 10% below its peak. And for every 1% or 2% drop 
uh, for thereafter, you buy a little bit, and if the market falls another one or two percent, you buy a little bit more, and you hope it falls enough over time to completely uh, execute all of your orders. You may not get anything executed, but at least as things are falling, you have the discipline of getting some orders executed along the way. And with that super long-term focus, perhaps you can be in a situation where even if the prices are getting worse, you're buying more, and you're getting more and more shares of whatever you're doing, so it looks a lot better in the end, if indeed the end is up from here. That, that's right, but again, don't, don't, don't get over your skis. So in my career, the biggest mistakes are only too much of one thing, not really understanding your true risk tolerance, or doing so on margin, or pretending you can day trade these swings. Um, you try to explain to me why the market falls 500 points, then goes up 500 points in the same day. Companies don't change their values that quickly, but stock prices sure do. I can't tell you why. Well, it's interesting, too. Like, we've talked a lot about, go back to January of 2016, right? We saw a similar pullback at the beginning of the year. Concerns, I think, about Chinese growth and some different things that were going on. Uh, And then we moved up from here. I mean, have our market cycles gotten shorter? In other words, well, that's not fair because the bull market has been moving higher for a long time. But, I mean, have our maybe corrective correction cycles gotten shorter? Well, you would, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you this. The reason this one was so unique, we fell peak to valley on the S&P 500 by just under 12% in only 10 trading sessions. Mm-hmm. Okay, you go back to 1928, 90 years of data. We've seen the market fall by over 5% 217 times. If you work it out, the average time between these corrections is roughly 64 trading sessions. The average duration of these corrections has been 40 days, 40 trading sessions, and the median has been 23 trading sessions. So no matter how you slice it, we fell that far in 10 sessions. On average, it takes 40 trading sessions. So clearly what happened this time was a combination of events leading to this. What we had was a 14-year high in something called the ISM New Orders Index, which is a measure of economic strength. You had the American Association of Individual Investors bullish sentiment series at its 15-year high. So everyone got very excited. Right. That was on the heels of the tax cuts. Yeah. We hadn't seen a correction in two years. Got it. Markets fall. One wage inflation figure comes out, and then we trigger these volatility indices. You probably had a fundamental Alan, statistic. we got to run. Alan Zafrin at First Republic Investment Management right here on Bloomberg. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It's time for your movers and shakers on this Monday afternoon. I'm Carol Master along with Corey Johnson, starting with the S&P 500. Most names in the S&P higher today, 427, certainly a more bullish trend to today's trade. 73 names in the S&P 500 lower today, five unchanged. Number one gainer in the S&P 500, no surprise, uh, because it was the acquisition of a takeover. Defense contractor General Dynamics, of course, agreeing to buy CSRA for about $6.8 billion or $40 
$1.75 a share. Uh, General Dynamics doing this to expand and providing information technology services to government agencies and the military. So forty seventy five was the takeout price. Shares of CSRA rallying 31% up almost 10 wow. bucks today yeah, to $40.39 a share. So just below um, the share price for the deal. Uh, the price, though, was 32% above CSRA's closing level on February 9th. Uh, General Dynamics also, Corey, assuming $2.8 billion of debt in order to get this deal done. But CSRA, CSRA shareholders, number one gainer in the S&P 500, up 31%. So this uh, stock, you wonder why a, a, a hot stock right now is up uh, is down one percent a day when the S and P five hundred is up one point four percent, the Nasdaq up one point six percent. Why are Snap shares down a full percent? Why the VP of sales quit after less than two years of the company. So there's a company sort of trying to execute a big turnaround in advertising. They get a little bit of a stock boost, and the Jeff Lucas, the VP of sales, has left the company. Uh, that's according to Cheddar, uh, which uh, got confirmation from the company. That's the seventh Snap executive to leave the company since the IPO. Hmm. Um, and it's just one of those things where you think, well, what, what were these people there for? And if they're really good at their jobs or they get really high hopes for this business, why leave now when the stock's only back to where it was trading on the first day of its IPO? Or initially began trading around the IPO time. So uh, at least some of the people getting out there, and that's a concern to the markets, and that stock's selling off as a result. Hey, I was checking out uh, shares of Under Armour. Now, they're going to report earnings after the opening bell tomorrow. Uh, the stock is the number third, uh, number three biggest gainer in the S&P 500 today. Uh, shares of Under Armour up 5.8% uh, to $13.18 a share. Stock is down about 1% so far this year. We've seen uh, Under Armour tracking a bullish option play before earnings. That's one story I'm noticing uh, on the terminal. But, you know, there have been questions and some increased competition at the company. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, we're seeing a kind of a bullish move along with the overall market trend today ahead of that earnings report, which comes out tomorrow. So we'll get more from the company tomorrow before the open. Were the post office much uh, Christmas time? Uh, no, 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 I actually didn't. You weren't alone. Uh, <laughs> data out of the post office shows that uh, U.S. postage spending uh, monthly data in December revealed a, a big deceleration from uh, uh, postage revenue growth in the prior two months. So this, the belief was that strong economy is going to have people buying stuff and shipping stuff. And that would look like that was the case in October and November. But December, a downturn, deacceleration at least. And uh, the result was a bad day today, as the data came out, from Stamps.com. Stamps.com shares were down uh, almost 12% at one day, 11% plus uh, uh, closing the day down to 5%. But Stamps.com's got a you know three billion dollar market cap, at least it does today after a decline, uh, does about uh, four hundred fifty million dollars in revenue. But the concern is maybe they didn't have that real strong growth in the fourth quarter that investors were counting on, and as a result, the stock sells off today, closing at one seventy five fifty three. Just quickly, I want to mention shares of Amazon because the Seattle Times came out uh, earlier today and said that Amazon is cutting several hundred jobs in Seattle, hundreds more around the world, pairing back after several years of aggressive expansion. Uh, the cuts most affecting uh, Amazon's consumer retail businesses, according to the newspaper. Uh, the reduction, though, modest for the second-largest U.S.-based corporate employer, which counted 541,900 total employees at the end of the third quarter. So, but, you know, it's not often that you hear this company necessarily cutting back workers. Shares of Amazon up 3.5% today at $1,386.23 a share. Stock is now up almost 19% so far this year. Well, you real quick here, Lumber Liquidators uh, is back in the news again uh, after all kinds of trouble. 
stock down today uh, again. Uh, the stock down quite a bit actually over, over in recent weeks, but down to nine percent today uh, with uh, news that Fidelity is getting out uh, mm. and uh, has ended its its, uh, its positions. Fidelity has been a big owner, a big supporter. Uh, throughout the uh, 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 scandal around that company. But Fidelity's out, and investors uh, saw that and uh, sold the stock off 9%. All right, so the VIX, which gained 68% last week, giving back some of that down, almost 12%. The VIX on this Monday closing at 25.65. This is Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. It's advanced drainage systems, Corey. They Which I never drain- looked at before. Advanced drainage systems, of course it is. There you go. Drain pipes, related products, or if you like the company's description, Water Management Solutions, which I mention only because their ticker is WMS. So it fits with that. Advanced Drainage was founded in 1966 and went public in July 2014. Company shares more than doubled within their first year of trading. They've been up and down since then, though they've stayed above their initial price of $16. Advanced Drainage began rallying Thursday after the company put out fiscal third quarter results. Earnings beat analyst average estimate in the Bloomberg survey for the first time in four quarters. They even surpassed the highest projection. Now, Advanced Drainage extended the gain on Friday and rose today as well. Today, you had President Donald Trump unveiling his infrastructure spending plan. And presumably, the program at least has the potential to help the company's business. Investors look like uh, certainly took it that way. Advanced Drain is closed with a gain of 6% today. And that brought the stock's three-day advance to 18.5%. One of those little-known companies, right, Dave? Absolutely. I mean, there are so many of them out there. And, but we're not talking about you know a really tiny company. It's a company mm. after today's trading with a market value of almost $1.5 billion. Yeah, so there exactly. you go. And the stock's up about 11% so far this year. Yeah, thanks to the three-day performance. So, absolutely. So, making Thank a you bit much. of a rebound. Good stuff. Dave Wilson, our stock editor. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.